that helps us understand how, how we can experience unity in a world of division, a world divided. And oh my goodness, we don't have to look far to see that we are a world divided. And there is something in us that just longs for and somehow yearns to just get along. We just want to experience that unity. And over the last few weeks, we have discovered that that unity amid diversity is something that we know a little about as the body of Christ. In fact, we know it in a way that many in the world do not know it. We've discovered that unity is only possible through Jesus Christ. Now, over the last few weeks, we have been taught about that unity with different members of our staff, and each one of them have been unique and different in their approach and in their delivery. And yet they're saying the same thing. And together we find that common denominator as we move forward. We've already discovered together in our time what it means to be one body. Though the body has many members, Paul says, it's one. And every member is important. Every member is vital to the health of the body and how that we are the body of Christ and every one of us different, every one of us unique, but every one of us essential to God's kingdom and purpose. And then we talked about together, Stu shared with us what it means to be one faith. We kind of discovered that it's not so much about how much faith I have, but who my faith is in that really gives us the unity and that one united faith in Christ this kind of supersedes all the other stuff that separates us. And then last time we were together, Brian talked to us about one spirit. The fact that each one of us, diverse, different, come from different backgrounds, cultures, experiences, but we, through faith in Christ, guess what? We have the same spirit in us. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. And there is a unity that connects us because... Even though we're different, we're the same. We have that same spirit in us. And today, we get to look at another of those ones that Paul says define us as believers. And I think this one is, is exciting to me because I believe this one more clearly allows us to see how diverse and different people can come together in unity, perhaps more than all of the others. And maybe it's just simply because it's connected to all the others. Paul says, we have one Lord. How can people with opposite opinions and on so many different issues come together? It's because we have one Lord. Maybe I could put it to you this way. We have one boss. And we have the same boss. And he gives all of us the same marching orders. And he says the same thing to me that he says to you. He is consistent. And as a result of that, when I yield my desires and when I lay my opinion down to embrace his, 
There's unity. And it's a beautiful thing. So if you have your Bible, look with me in Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 4. We discover these amazing truths. He begins, you will recall, by challenging us to, to have that unity and hold on to that unity and in fact guard that unity. See, Paul knows that, that, that the one thing God does is he brings different people together and he makes us one, but we live in a world that wants desperately to divide us. The whole concept of divide and conquer is, is at the heart of what Satan does as he wants to divide us so that we are alone and can be conquered. And so Paul says, hey, we need to really do everything we can to guard that, to protect that. And then he kind of defines that for us. So let's just back up just for that background again to understand it and begin with verse one in chapter four. And remember, the, 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 the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first part, the first three chapters really are doctrine and Paul gets into some deep things that we need to know. But when he turns the corner in chapter four, five, and six, he talks about how to apply what I've just taught you. So this is more about application. And as he turns, he says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beseech you, I beg you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, show tolerance with one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he says, there's one body, one spirit, just as there is also we're called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Well, today, in order to really unpack and talk about what it means to have one Lord, there are three things that I want to do in our time together. First of all, I, I want to talk to you about the reality of the Lordship of Christ, or I, I might put it this way, the revelation. God's word reveals that Jesus is Lord, and the reality of that changes things. And so we'll talk first about the reality of the Lordship of Jesus, that he is Lord according to the revelation that God gives in his word. Secondly, though, I think we need to talk about the realm of his lordship. If he is Lord, then, then, then the second question is, Lord, over what? Where does he reign? And, and, and to what extent does his kingdom involve me? So we talk next about the reign or the, the, the realm of his lordship. And then finally, you have to talk about when you talk about the revelation of the Lordship, what does the Bible say about Jesus as Lord and the realm of his Lordship? We've got to come to a place where we respond to it because even the fact that he is Lord requires of us a decision. Well, with that in mind, let's talk first about the revelation of his Lordship or the reality of his lordship. This is a term that you have heard if you've grown up in church, but it's important for our discussion about one because I believe that, that the reality of the lordship of Christ is really what makes us one. It's what gives us the ability to work together with such diversity and so many varied backgrounds and opinions. Now, when you look at the Bible, 
you immediately recognize there are many, many names in Scripture for Jesus. You could probably, off the top of your head, name four or five. I, I was thinking about that as I was looking at this particular text. The, the Bible refers to Jesus as Messiah. He is the, the anointed one, the one that is prophesied to come in the Old Testament. He's referred to as the living water. He is also called the bread of life, the son of God. He's called the son of man, redeemer, rock, rose of Sharon, bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000. He is called savior and he's called Lord. But when you look at all of the names that are given to Jesus, Lord seems to come to the top. Over 700 times in the New Testament, the Bible refers to Jesus as Lord. There's only one term that is used more in the Bible as a description of Jesus, and that would be the name Jesus. Only the name Jesus occurs more times as referring to Jesus than the term Lord. The Bible makes it clear. Scripture is clear. The revelation of God is clear. Jesus is Lord. Now, it's important that we understand this as the children of God. He's not Lord because you make him Lord. He's Lord. I've grown up in church and many times we come to a place where we understand that we need Jesus as our Savior. We understand the Bible teaches that we are sinners separated from God, that we can't save ourselves, and we need a Savior. We need someone to come and pay a sin debt that we owe that we can't pay, and the, the sin debt is death. And we know that the gospel teaches that Jesus came to pay that sin death, that he died in my place so that he could become my savior. I could turn from my sin to receive him as my savior. But I want you to understand, you do not receive Jesus as savior and later on receive him as Lord. You see, a lot of times I've heard people say this, well, I was 10 years old when I recognized my need for Jesus and turned from my sin and I accepted him as my savior, but I didn't really accept him as my Lord until much later. I want you to understand, you can't receive him as savior and not receive him as Lord because Lord is not a description of what he does, it is a description of who he is. And to receive him as savior is to also receive him as Lord. And that literally means boss. It means he's the one that controls and rules in my life. I yield my opinion. I yield my desire. I die to self so that he can be not only my savior, he is the only one who can save me, but he saves me in order that he may also be my Lord. And so I yield to him saying, I need you as my savior, but I receive you as my Lord. All that, that you tell me to do, I will do. Every decision that I have to make is, is made in light of the Lordship of Christ. It, it is the Bible and the revelation of God that reveals to me. And do you see how that brings us together? So it doesn't make any difference if you're Democrat or Republican. God's the one that calls the shots. It's the Bible that dictates where we stand on any issue. 
So what happens is, even if I'm a Republican, I have to agree with you if you're a Democrat on these issues because God's the one that tells me where I stand on these issues, not a political party, not logic, not my own mind, not my own experiences. No, no, we're, we're together because this is what God says and God's word speaks and God's word's not up for debate. There are some things you don't vote on, you know? There are some things that God says, and because he says it, it settles it in history and in my life. So what the Bible tells us is that God, Jesus, is indeed Lord. Not a position that he holds, but it's who he is. It's a part of his divine nature. And you will, listen to me carefully, you will embrace him as Lord Lord of all, or he will not be Lord at all. You see, the times when we struggle in the body of Christ and we lose our unity and we become cross with one another are the times when we pick up our own opinion, our own desire, and march to the tune of our own drum as opposed to his Remind you, Jesus is going to be Lord of all, or he's not going to be Lord at all. The second thing that we discover in Scripture is the realm of his lordship. If he is indeed Lord, and the Bible declares that he is, and he is sovereign Lord over all things, then what is the realm of his lordship? What is the extent of his kingdom? Well, the Bible says that he is Lord of creation. He's not just an agent of creation. He is creator. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the same was in the beginning with God and all things, listen to this, all things were made by him and without him nothing was made that was made. The Bible says he's Lord of creation because he is creator. In fact, Paul says in Colossians, all things were created by him and for him. When you look at the life of Jesus, he demonstrated that he is Lord over all creation. You remember the time when the disciples and Jesus got into the boat to go on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? The Sea of Galilee is a beautiful body of water, kind of in a lower area, surrounded by mountains. And one of the things that is common in the Sea of Galilee is a storm that can come up without any warning and, and quickly become violent. So Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and they've made their way out to the middle of this, this lake or this body of water called the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes and Jesus is, is, is tired and is in the back of the boat and is asleep. And these seasoned fishermen who are familiar with that area are, are fighting with the oars trying to, to bring them to land, but the wind is so violent and the waves are so rough. They are absolutely convinced they are taking on so much water, there's no way that they're going to be able to make it back to shore. In an absolute fear, they wake Jesus up and they said, Master, don't you even care that we're going to perish? We're going to die out here. This wind, look around. And you remember what Jesus does. 
Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind. He says, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, the violence of the storm and, and the violence of the thunder and the lightning and the waves suddenly become calm. And can you imagine these huge waves beginning to die down? And after a, a few moments, the wind completely ceases and all of a sudden, the, 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 the body of water is just still and quiet to the point that the disciples looked around and said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, they obey him because they knew the voice of their creator. Jesus demonstrated that he is Lord of creation when, when he stood at the, the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had died and he had been dead three days. Jesus standing at the tomb said, hey guys, roll the stone back. And they said, Lord, man, we wish you'd have been here before he died. You probably could have saved him, but he's been dead three days now and you don't really want to move the stone back. He's probably already in the decay process and it's not going to be a fun thing. And, and Jesus said, just, just roll the stone back. And they roll the stone back and all of a sudden the Bible says he, he looks up at the heavens and, and, and he speaks and, and he looks into the tomb and he speaks and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible tells us that man who is dead for three days suddenly is alive. When Jesus speaks to death, death has to bow his head and let go of the grip of Lazarus. And I want to tell you something. I'm absolutely convinced had Jesus not used the term Lazarus at the very beginning, if he had not said Lazarus come forth, if he would have just said come forth, every grave would have opened and all dead people would have come to life. Jesus looked into that tomb and said, Lazarus, I'm speaking to you. He has authority over death. He has authority over creation. He is Lord over creation and demonstrates it. He was Lord over creation because Jesus shows us that he can speak to sickness and he can speak to disease and sickness and disease will loosen their grip on the victim that they have held prey and they're healed. Jesus revealed when he was alive that he was Lord over creation. When he would speak to demons and even the demons were subject to his commands because they knew who he was. He's Lord and we must obey his voice. I want to tell you something. The Bible tells us that Jesus is Lord over all creation. Jesus commands and there is obedience. But Paul tells us that he's also Lord over the church. Now that's where we come into play because you're the church. The church isn't the building. The church is the people of God. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in him have become the church. And guess what? The Bible says Jesus is Lord over the church. Paul said he is the head of the body of Christ. He's the brains of the outfit. All of us understand that our body moves and functions and performs as it does at the will of the mind. Our brain controls and Jesus is the brains of the outfit. He's the one that tells us what to do and where to go and how to live and what to believe 
and what to hold to. The reason the church can be unified even when we are different, even when we worship differently is because Jesus is the one that gives the marching orders to the church. And we all have the same boss and we all obey his command and we all listen to and respond to his voice. Listen, I have to remind you from time to time, the church is not a democracy. We sometimes as Baptists, because our polity is to have a business meeting and we vote on things, we sometimes think that we as a church are a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a theocracy. A democracy is controlled by the majority. A theocracy is controlled by God. God's the one that tells us what we are to do and, and what not to do. You notice democracies divide us. One of the reasons that we are divided as a nation is because our politics demands it. Every time we have an election, because we have a, a democratic process in a republic, we have a democratic process of representation. You know what that means? It means that there's always a winner and a loser. And you know what I've discovered? When you have a winner and a loser, you're set up for failure, right? Every time. It doesn't make any difference who's running for office. Somebody's gonna win, somebody's gonna lose. And that means that, that the majority, all of us in, in our, our nation, we're gonna be in one of two camps. Either we won or we lost. We are divided. But the church isn't a democracy. You and I don't get to pick what we believe about things. God does that for us. That's... The way our actions are governed, it's a theocracy. When God says it, that settles it. He's the one that tells us what's right and wrong. That's why the church comes together and God and his word dictates it. And if your opinion is not consistent with the word of God, then listen to me, you have to change your opinion. You have to lay it down to embrace his. He's Lord of all are not at all. What makes us one is that we have the same boss. When I wanna know what I believe about something, I, I, I go to the Bible. God, what do you say? What does your word say? Where do I stand on this? We make biblical decisions. And we live that out in our life. That's the unity that we have as a church. So, he is Lord over creation, and he is Lord over the church, so that every decision that I make is based on the lordship of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know, finally, that we have to respond to the lordship of Christ. There's a response to make. See, here's an interesting truth. We've established the fact that Jesus is Lord, but, but what I want you to understand, there's a difference between Jesus being Lord and Jesus being your Lord. And it's possible for you to say, oh, I believe Jesus is Lord, but he's not your Lord. He's not the ruler of your life. 
Lordship by its very nature is an all or nothing proposition. There's no such thing as partial lordship. Jesus is either Lord or he's not. Now, I, I know that there are times in our life as a Christian when we're not always yielded to the lordship of Christ. We're not always walking according to his plan. Sometimes our opinions get in the way. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. In fact, I believe it's not the perfection of our life, it's the direction of our life. And what we should be leaning toward is that, that, that I'm not perfect, but, but, but when you look at the total of my life, my direction is to be obedient to God. My leaning, my default setting is to always come back to what he says. And I know that there are times when, 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 when I, I don't want to do what God wants to do and I want to do what I want, but the default setting is to always come back and say, but God, not my will, but yours be done. Lordship is a response to who he is, not to what he demands. You see, one of the problems that I think many of us face and the reason that we sometimes can talk about unity in the church but not see it in the church. And we can talk about unity in the body of Christ and not always see it in the body of Christ is because some of us want to debate, we want to debate the commands of God before we embrace the control of God. We want to say, if I agree with your demands, then I will yield the control of my life. God, I want you to be the Lord of my life as long as I like what you're asking of me. But the moment you ask me to do something I don't want to do, then, then wait a minute, let's, let's take a time out. I'm not really sure I want you to be Lord right now. And, and I want you to understand we don't have that option. And there are many of you that are living your life that way. And the reason we're defeated is because the enemy is literally divided and conquered because we're living in our wisdom and in our knowledge and in our power and there is failure always associated with those things. But when we live in his power, in his wisdom, and in his direction, then there's victory. You see, you and I don't get to choose. It's not if I know who he is or, or what he wants, then I get to make a decision. I, I guess I could put it this way. If, if I know who he is, it doesn't matter what he asks. In fact, I firmly believe that there are some things in life, and maybe, maybe the majority of life, but there are some things in life in the life of a Christian that can only be understood in light of the Lordship of Christ. I mean, if you go back and you read the Bible and you look at the life of the heroes of faith, you would, you would read through Hebrews chapter 11 and scratch your head as to why in the world is this guy a hero? I mean, Abraham left his family left his home, left everything he was comfortable with, forsook everything to go to a place he didn't even know where he was going. Under any other circumstances, we would look at that and say that doesn't make any sense. But when we understand that Jesus is Lord, 
and God led him to do that, guess what? Makes sense. I get it. I know people who have left the comfort of home to travel halfway around the world to learn a language that they don't know, to share their life with people they have never met, to sacrifice everything you and I would want in life to devote themselves to share the gospel with people in a place they've never been. And to the world, we would look and say, that makes no sense at all unless you understand the Lordship of Christ. And they say to you, well, God led me there. Well, then it makes sense. He's Lord. And if he tells you to go, you don't have any choice but to go. If he tells you to to do that, then that's what you've got to do. There are some things in life that only make sense in light of the Lordship of Christ. So, So when I ask you this question, What are the things in your life that only make sense in light of the reality that he's Lord? Are there things in our life that others would look at and say, that doesn't make any sense at all? But it makes all the sense in the world to us because he is Lord. Whether it's Noah or Moses or the disciples or any of those we would pick, Your life only makes sense in light of the fact that he is Lord. Well, the Lordship of Christ demands a decision. I want to leave you with two verses of Scripture with regard to that. The Bible tells us not only that Jesus is Lord, but it also says that there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. In the book of Philippians and in the book of Romans both, Paul said there is coming a day when everyone will know, there will be no doubt, even people that don't believe now, there's gonna come a day when everyone will know. What that means is there are no atheists in hell right? You can be an atheist until you die, but the moment you die, you're no longer an atheist. You know the truth then. There will come a day when you will bow and confess. But there's also a day now that you can bow and confess. In that day, it's too late. But there's another verse in the Bible I refer to it sometimes as the most frightening verse in all the Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus speaking and what he says in that verse is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody that says Jesus is Lord is going to heaven. In fact, the scary thing about that verse is it it seems to indicate that it is possible for you to believe with all your heart you're going to heaven and die and go to hell. And that's frightening to me. 
What he's saying is that there are some people that are going to, 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 to be on their deathbed thinking they're going to heaven, and they're not. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he goes one step further and says, but he who does the will of the Father. What he's saying is this. There's, it's one thing to say he's Lord. It's another thing for him to be Lord. To acknowledge who he is, everyone's going to do that one day. But he's given us an opportunity to do that today and to declare that he's Lord and not just declaration, but by an action of my heart, I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. I turn from my sin to receive you. And Lord, I declare you are my Lord. I lay my opinions down, my attitude, my thought. It's not about me. It's what you want. And when we do that, we become a part of his family. And when we become a part of his family, yielded in our life to him, everybody else in the family is in the same place and there's unity. Is it possible that some of you are saying, well, I've accepted him as savior, but not Lord. Can't do that. So today I'm inviting you to make him Lord of your life by yielding your life to him. If you've never done that, you've never come to the place where you said, God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin, come into my life. I give you my life. Here I am. Today's your day to do that. It may be as a child of God that you have made that decision, but you've turned into your own way as opposed to his. And today's the opportunity for you to come back and make him Lord because in one Lord, we are one. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. And there's nothing new about what we've talked about here. We all know this as believers. But it's amazing how, how many times I, I step into your spot and make the decisions for my life. Even though every time I do that, it's a mess. I have a tendency to do that. And so God, I ask you to forgive me today and I make a decision to, to restore you today as Lord of my life. I want you to be the one that calls the shots. Bring us together as a church under the banner of your purpose and plan that we might be who you have called us to be. And if there's one listening today who has never accepted you as Savior, may today be that day that they turn to receive you and the gift of eternal life so they can walk in the grace that you provide is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. 
financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us. Thank you.